The spirit of performance defines Acura. And now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. It's Jim Cramer here. You're listening to the opening bell of CNBC's Squawk on the Street. Don't miss a minute of the action. Good Wednesday morning and welcome to Squawk on the Street. I'm David Faber with Leslie Picker and Mike Santoli. We are live from the New York Stock Exchange. Jim and Carl both have today off. Let's give you a look at futures uh, as we get ready to set up a half hour from now. You can see we are. That looks higher to me. I'm going to go with that. Yeah, I think I'm right, too. Okay, our roadmap does start with the September setup for stocks. You're looking at it right there. The S&P is coming off what is a seven-month winning streak, the backdrop for the rally and the investor risks in the month ahead. Plus, out of gas, a large chunk of service stations in Louisiana site cities don't have fuel in the aftermath of Hurricane Ida. We'll get the latest from on the ground in New Orleans and Baton Rouge. And a new so-called death tax running into new roadblocks in D.C. We will dig into the uh, step back for the step up tax. Yeah, stepping back, stepping up yep. in terms of, uh, yeah, both, uh, well, key there. But let's talk markets here if we can, of course, as we begin a new month uh, after a relatively strong August. Uh, Mike Santoli, I will turn to you because you have all the statistics. <laughs> You've already told us, I know, from our previous chats during the course of this week, September typically not a great month for right. stocks. Uh, the worst of all. Uh, if you go back a long term, uh, you know, 100 years, it's the worst. If you go back uh, 20 or 10 years, it's also not great, but less dramatically so. Last September, it's worth remembering, is when we did have that pretty bruising correction mostly concentrated in the Nasdaq. We had come into September on this huge rush higher. Everyone was worried about Fang is dominating. Fang and Tesla were dominating the whole market. Um, and we did actually have the last, what we would consider to be a corrective period between September 2nd and then, you know, really through October before the election. Uh, so, I don't think the setup is that similar right now because we're not riding high momentum. We're riding kind of boring, orderly uptrend. Um, economic data has been coming in worse than expected for a while now. If you look at the city surprise, economic surprise index, it's actually well negative after being positive for months. The market's absorbing that and just saying, well, we're going we're gonna to fight through this period. There's going to be another push in terms of recovery after this sort of stutter step with, with COVID. Uh, so I think the thing to keep in mind, seven straight up months. Those streaks don't last much longer, but when they end, it usually isn't the big cataclysmic um, mega peak. You know, it's sort of like in this uh, ensuing months, usually uh, positive. The one 
uh, thing that haunts all the statistics is the year 1987. <laughs> because all the stuff that was like, oh, and the market's been up 15 or 20 percent through August, um, it's always great, except for 87. <laughs> right. So, you know, that's always been kind of the force majeure uh, clause of looking at market history. Yeah, I was going to ask you about September and years like this one, where you do see such strong price momentum for the first eight or so months of the year. Yeah. Then, you know, does that tend to imply that September will be uncharacteristically strong, or is it such that that could actually make it even riskier because we have seen such strong momentum throughout the beginning of the year, you know, things have to turn at some point. Exactly. No, I mean, it tends to mean that there's less nasty downside in September if the market's already been strong and not very volatile. That's just a rule of thumb. Um, I also would have to say uh, the calendar stuff is just kind of one piece of the puzzle. Um, it has not necessarily worked to script this year. Uh, if the May through, uh, you know, October periods are supposed to be the weakest half of the year, well, this year you're actually making a lot of progress. So right. you, I would look back to 2013 and 2017. Those are the years that look most like this one in terms of no, no sharp pullbacks, very steady uptrend, lots of rotation, post-election years in both cases. Um, and 2013, you did have uh, actually a decent little, you know, setback, I don't know, high single right. digit or something like that. But, you know, there, there are the names that, well, other than Netflix and, and missing from that is Microsoft in terms of the biggest market cap names yeah. and their impact on the S&P. I mean, we've had any number of people, and I think you included, Mike, to a certain extent, have not referred to the S&P any longer as the broader market yeah. because it is so dominated by these mega, mega caps. I mean, we're talking Apple with over two and a half yeah. trillion dollar market value, Microsoft at two point two six trillion as we head into trading today. And Google knocking on the door of two trillion as well. The numbers right. are just hard to imagine. It's different than 2013 or even 2017 in that way. Dramatically. And and also those are not companies that are kind of moving tick by tick with the economic, you know, data coming in or with people's real it's it's a risk appetite tell and they're steady growth companies. What they're not is purely defense, right? It's not consumer staples. It's not utility. So if you were getting led by those areas, you say, oh, the market's sniffing out some economic issues. So, uh, you know, so far insulated from the big down moves. We'll see if that uh, if that continues. Speaking of, you know, some of these sectors that have had a little bit of a comeback in the last month or so, financials, the top performing sector in August, the S&P Bank Index having its best monthly performance since February. Joining us now is Piper Sandler, senior research analyst Jeff Hart, to talk about where where to from here, Jeff. And, um, you know, a good month for banks and, and the rest of the financials. But, you know, the last several months, let's say the last six months, it's been more sideways, kind of trading along with um, with Treasury yields. Uh, so how is the setup right now? Uh, we've gotten the big buyback announcements from the huge banks. We know the credit situation looks looks relatively good. So uh, how would you, uh, I guess, position within the sector at this point? I think that the path upward, the path is still upward for for bank stocks from here. I mean, you kind of, as you mentioned earlier, directionally they've been trading with the ten-year up a lot in the first quarter, gave it back in the second quarter. Now they're kind of moving back up again. But really, when when I look at the banking environment and the outlook, you can kind of say the song remains the same, right? Credit's still really good. We're still waiting for loan growth. We think it'll happen, but we're still waiting for loan growth. Uh, fee revenues, be they mortgage or capital markets, have been better than expected. 
you know, put against what our interest rate's going to do and kind of, you know, where, where do you go from here? The, the nice thing about the capital return stores, yeah, we've got the big buybacks announced and the dividends, et cetera, but the big buybacks do turn into a large price insensitive buyer in the market for a lot of these stocks. So not only is it, hey, it could be good for earnings, but it can also, you know, when you're offsetting your top shareholder or two multiple times, that, that, that's a nice stable bid out there that's not going to be price sensitive. What do you think is restraining the stocks or the valuations? I mean, obviously, you know, we, we see and we observe that it's trading with Treasury yields and maybe with expectations eventually for when the Fed might hike. But is that necessary? Does it always have to be the case? There's always, you know, this chance that, that some other theme emerges uh, that gets you, the, the group revalued. Yeah, I, mean, I think a couple of things that could happen to help revalue the group. And, and number one would be interest rates, and specifically short-term interest rates. If the Fed started hiking, and that implies the economy is good, that, that would help the bank stocks. But also loan growth. I mean, we've been watching kind of the pre-leading indicators of loan growth for most of the year, trending in the right direction, saying we should be seeing loan growth. And, I mean, it, loans have been stable, right? We're kind of seeing it, but we're not really seeing it pick up yet. Strong loan growth kind of in the back half of the year into next year, I think, would be would be a big thing to, to help to push the bank stocks up from here. Jeff, do you expect to see more consolidation in light of some of this recent outperformance? Do you expect to see, especially maybe in the asset management space, which has done its fair share of merger activity in recent years, do you expect them to see kind of a tailwind with this higher currency? Yeah, I, mean, I think when, you, when you're looking at the asset management space, there's still going to be a lot of consolidation, um, but also in the bank space, right? I mean, one of the areas we like in the banks is the universal banks, the big guys that have scale, because in a slower growth environment, scale really matters. Well, the offset to that is smaller banks are much more likely to kind of combine to get scale. So I think we'll, we'll see it kind of continued, continued a lot of transaction and kind of, I think, both bank land, but also kind of specifically asset management. And it does seem in financials. I mean, fintech has really been the hot area people have been have been looking at, at least over the last couple of months. That's kind of been uh, where a lot of the outperformance has come from. Some of the big banks like a B of A or JP Morgan are actually big players in that space as well. But, you know, if we can get the attention turning back toward more traditional loan growth and supply demand things, that, that would be that would be good for the bank stocks in general. Well, that's exactly the point. I wonder what would make that happen, because you look at PayPal and Square together, their market value is the same as J.P. Morgan. The, the market wants to put huge multiples on the disruptors and are considering the big banks the disrupted. What could change that? Well, I, I think the big banks aren't so much going to be disrupted as they'll be a part of the disruption, right? I mean, if you go back a mm -hmm. few years ago, there were concerns as J.P. Morgan or B of A going to be able to compete with kind of the, the fintech startups. What we've seen over the last couple of years is a lot more partnerships, and they're kind of working together. Because I think some of the fintechs have realized having the big client base, having a strong balance sheet, being able to lend can, can, can be a plus. So, I mean, I, I think that's part of what's going to help differentiate the universal banks from banks in general mm -hmm. is they can invest in technology. They can really take advantage of a lot of technological disruption that, that, that's going on out there. Jeff, thanks very much. Appreciate it this morning. Good to be on. Now time for an update on the damage from Hurricane Ida. Frank Holland is on the ground in New Orleans and has the latest. Hey, Frank. Good morning, Leslie. Well, this morning, as you can see, the majority of New Orleans was without power. Right now, we're here in the French Quarter, this area included. And uh, in the coming days, about 20,000 utility workers from 22 different states, they're going to descend on New Orleans to try to get this power grid back up and running. So this morning, just about 988,000 people in Louisiana, most of them in the New Orleans area, are without power. 
Now, that's actually down slightly from yesterday, where that total was just about a million. Energy, the local utility says they have restored some power to the eastern part of New Orleans. We're seeing a bit of progress, but it will likely take weeks to get the power fully restored. CNBC also getting a drone view of one of the transmission towers knocked down and damaged by Hurricane Ida. Towers and key transmission lines damaged in the storm also expected to take weeks to fix. Crews also doing the very labor-intensive work of manually carrying cables across highways and putting them back up on poles. Energy says there is a lot of redundancy built into their system, but all of that was wiped out by Ida. New Orleans' largest hospital system also holding a briefing yesterday, updating people on their situation. Uh, they had to evacuate a lot of people from their hospitals during the hurricane. Right now, all their facilities are running on backup power, and officials there say they're very worried about another spike in COVID-19. Everyone leaving, uh, traveling, sheltering in small places, gathering groups together. Now people may be returning to the city and region. Uh, will there be another spike in, in our COVID-19 patients uh, or, or uh, uh, infections? Big concern for the hospitals here. The Oxner uh, Medical System says it is working to reopen its COVID-19 testing and vaccination sites. Chief Medical Officer saying that's a top priority. The entire state of Louisiana has been deemed high risk for COVID infections by the Louisiana Department of Health. Here in the New Orleans area, about 53 percent of people are vaccinated compared to about 69 percent nationally in the state. Ninety one percent of the people in hospitals are unvaccinated. Back over to you. Wow, Frank, it's certainly... um Terrible timing, especially as it pertains to the summer as well. I know you've mentioned uh, the fact that the power outages have become essentially a humanitarian crisis as people aren't able to get air conditioning, uh, access to clean water and so forth. Um, Given kind of what we saw with regard to the money spent after Hurricane Katrina to fix the levee system, is there any sense that there's some sort of um, infrastructure upgrade that can be done to prevent these types of power outages moving forward? We've seen it in Houston. We've seen it in Louisiana. Uh, Is this a fixable solution, especially since this was a hurricane uh, that we knew was going to hit this region? You know, Leslie, that's a great question. Um, I know a lot of uh, things are under consideration. I was actually in contact with the Port of Houston. Its executive director has been named to a task force to try to address some of the situations with supply chain and some of the infrastructure here in the Gulf Coast. But in general, city officials right now, they're just really worried about the basics. You mentioned no air conditioning. That may seem trivial after a disaster. Well, I can tell you right now, it's first thing in the morning here, about 8 o'clock in the morning. It's already about 90 degrees with 90 percent humidity. So imagine being stuck in a home overnight, waking up to these kind of temperatures. Also, we haven't been able to find a cold drink for days. So right now, I think city officials, whether it be police or health system officials, they're just trying to meet those very basic needs. And I think that infrastructure and those questions about the infrastructure, that's going to have to wait a few days. Frank, thank you. Frank Collin reporting for us live from New Orleans. Coming up, we're going to have more on Ida and those gasoline shortages as well. We're going to hear from a group which represents owners, operators, and suppliers of more than 3,000 service stations and convenience stores in Louisiana. For now, though, let's give you another look at futures, of course. We've got a little uh, more than 15 minutes before we get started with trading here on what Lise Kramer and I like to call Hump Day. More squawk on the street from the New York Stock Exchange straight ahead. 
electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Squawk on the Street. We're getting back to Ida's aftermath in Louisiana. A large portion of gas stations in the state's biggest cities are out of fuel. In fact, according to the latest data from Gas Buddy, more than 52% of stations in Baton Rouge and New Orleans are without gas at this hour. Joining us now is the executive director of the Louisiana Oil Marketers and Convenience Store Association, Natalie Isaacs, which represents owners of more than 3,000 stations in the state. Natalie, thank you for being here. I'm sure it has been a very busy week already for you. Can you just first give us a status update on what you're hearing from your members uh, within the state of Louisiana? So, um, obviously, we were hit, but before the storm comes is when we really started, um, you know, working big overtime in terms of trying to get people ready for the storm and getting people out of um, harm's way with evacuation routes and keeping that um, busy. We first assessed the uh, damage of what was going on. And um, we have fuel teams with the state as well and different entities that are affected with uh, fuel and supplying fuel. How cataclysmic was the impact uh, from this storm, especially relative to those historically? So I've been in this position with Katrina, and um, it it seems like we always go back and um, compare so much to, to that storm. But in terms of fuel supply, this is so different. Um... We've had, I think we have eight refineries that are still down out of uh, 19. And that doesn't obviously just supply our area here in Louisiana, but we supply, you know, uh, surrounding areas in the entire country. And so um, we're seeing just in my little community, which is in Ascension Parish, we were hit out of electricity and whatnot. Some stations, I'd say about 60% are able to be open, um, but it's not constant. And so some people may wait in line even for two hours. And then by the time that they get their chance to fill up, it's actually um, the lines are dry, if that makes sense. Um, The lines for our guys picking up at the refiners that are open, Typically, you may be able to get a load of fuel in 30 minutes. And prior to the storm, some waits for like four hours. 
um, in fact, this is this is this is kind of a story that stayed on my mind. But I have a member that actually sent a driver to Pennsylvania. The same time he sent a driver to Opelousas, Louisiana, which is around Lafayette. And the line in Lafayette, the Opelousas terminal was so long, the driver was able to go to Pennsylvania and back and load fuel at stations. The driver in Opelousas was still in line, you know, waiting to get fuel. So um, that just blew my mind. That was a day before the storm. But that is just how, um, you know, we just, we're so dependent on fuel and using it, especially right now we have a lot of generators going right. for people that the power went out and gas is needed for that as well. Yeah, yeah. well, we are certainly sending our best to um, all of the affected people in Louisiana. We appreciate you joining us today to share the story of the gas stations and convenience stores in Louisiana. Natalie Isaacs, thank you. Thank you, Leslie. All right, we've had a lot of uh, movers to get to this morning. Going to talk a lot about the rails as well, but take a look at Lucid. Uh, that uh, EV startup, of course, I'll tell you why that stock is stumbling. Should we tell you now? I mean, I feel bad, kind of. You know, should we really be teasing something like that? It's the pipe holders, 166.7 million shares, but we got a lot more on it, so stay with us when we come back. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. As we head into the first trading session of September, here's a look at the top performers on the S&P 500. So far this quarter, Moderna leading the pack by a wide margin, up about 62%. And by the way, that stock is also down more than 20% from its high. So it had a wild run. Albemarle, Paycom, Fortinet, and Monolithic Power round out the top five for the quarter. The opening bell is just minutes away. Mark Invest, Kathy Wood, buying Zoom on the dip. Her fund scooped up shares totaling more than $56 million in value. This after the stock, of course, was down dramatically yesterday. Zoom reported earnings. There was concern about its guidance, about 2022, particularly about small and medium-sized businesses. By the way, Wood also purchased 260,000 shares of Robinhood. Let's play the music again for Leslie because she <laughs> told me she wasn't familiar with it. It's such a good and pun, it's, though. It's really nice, isn't it? And also the... Yeah. yeah. Also, that the yeah. animation is everything. Thank you. Um, and the fact that she sort of has a flock and people, you know, yes. together yeah. converge on. And we get a great deal of transparency from her. Yes. I like to point oh, that exactly. out. It's not like we would get this for most money managers. Any no, money manager. actively manage ETFs, there has to be some level. Yes. Of trans- oh. As opposed to mutual funds or something. That's a good point. Uh, and in both these cases, you should keep in mind, she's averaging down, right? I mean, she's already a big holder of, uh, of uh, Zoom, like a top 10 holder. More than a billion dollars worth. So, yep. uh, and that's the way Arc, you know, will act. They feel like they have a long-term disruptive company. Wait for the market to swamp it a little bit, and then you know, 
raise your bet. Yeah, uh, she definitely has conviction. Uh, that's certainly a characteristic of hers. Did you guys also see the, the news about this transparency ETF, uh, kind of the next leg of this ESG movement, but something that ARC is calling transparency. Uh, they're not going to include oil and gas. They're not going, going to include alcohol. And interestingly, they are excluding banks as well, which you don't always see that kind of grouped in with the traditional sin stocks plus oil and gas, but uh, kind of an interesting move there. I do think it's kind of their response to this movement toward ESG-specific in so this, is, a, this is an ETF being introduced by ARC, Arc called Transparency, Trans- that will not include banks because banks, banks that, I mean, so, that finance, what is it? Why? Do we know? No idea why. Uh, I just thought that was an interesting aspect to kind of this, you know, next leg of ESG-focused ETFs to not include banks hmm. as part of that kind of category of, of areas that you would no, yeah, consider non-ESG. If, if it was that their 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 business models and their financials are opaque, or right. is that their role in society is such that it's not compatible with having you know maximum transparency and and things like that? Look, if you believe in things like decentralized finance or something like that, which you know it seems pretty much adjacent to a lot of those yes. trends, yes, um, maybe that's where it comes in. But it is it is interesting. It's also look the big banks are not disruptive. <laughs> You know, right. really. I mean, obviously, they can be within their businesses, but their legacy. I want to keep pointing out on Zoom that 5-9 deal, pretty big deal, could be at least in some jeopardy on the vote, which is uh, at the end of this month, I think, given the stock there is below where they actually acquired the company um, when they announced that July 18th. All right, you hear the applause, and two, one, there it is, the opening bell. And a look at the CNBC real-time exchange as we start trading in September. Here at the Big Four, David Amerisource Bergen celebrating the 20th anniversary of the merger of Amerisource Health and Bergen Brunswick. I remember it well. Over at the NASDAQ, it's Israeli digital intelligence company Celebrite. That one I don't remember as well, but they both are uh, ringing the bell today, so they're celebrating. Congratulations uh, to and here, And we do open up, uh, Michael, uh, a, a bit on the S&P, looking at some of our big cap names that we are so focused on. I mean, Apple's still underperforming the broader market uh, at this point by about, what, 5 percentage yeah. points or so, 500 basis points, as we uh, head into the, uh, to the last four months of the year. You know, mentioned earlier that going into September 1st, 2nd of last year, it was maximum concentration in the big growth stocks. Apple at that moment peaked uh, right at that time. They had, remember, a stock split. Um, a lot of things were going together. Tesla was splitting its side. It just seemed like there was a huge retail excitement for the big guys. On a one-year basis, uh, since that day, Apple's only up 14% only. It's about half what the S&P has done over that period of time. But... It had built up this massive lead ahead of that. So that's been the give and take of this market. And talking about concentration, we got to about 25% of the S&P in those big five NASDAQ names, the top five. Uh, we're down about 23. So it's not as if it's become so much more widespread in terms of market value. But you've kind of come a little bit off the highs in terms of concentration because cyclical stocks had, you know, a decent run 
for a little while. Yeah, we've seen kind of this rotation back and forth and back and forth throughout 2021. Uh, given what we saw with the 10-year yield, um, I think there was a note by Matt Maley this morning talking about how if that does surpass kind of that 1.3% uh, threshold, that we could see more of a rotation back into value. Is that something that you're also watching, especially as it pertains to some of the concentration in the, in the tech-heavy uh, indexes that we do tend to watch? Yeah. It, the, the, well, the pattern has absolutely been when yields lift, it sort of gives the green light for the value in cyclical stocks to do better. So presumably all that stuff would come together. Um, yields have been stubborn. Uh, global yields have actually started to, to nudge up a little bit. So maybe that releases them higher. But as I said earlier, the economic numbers have been not great relative to expectations. They've been fine in terms of trend. But uh, so we'll see if that if that happens. I feel like it's almost a more uh, it, growth has been kind of holding the line on the market and basically preserving the gains that was built up by the city. That's the way the, the back and forth has been for a while. Because earnings have been fantastic Phenomenally good. this yes. quarter. And yes. I think it was 90% of companies beating their bottom line estimates. I mean, Almost obviously... Almost too good to last in right. that fashion. And I think the market has said, this is great. Earnings estimates keep going up. but And that supports the valuation. But it hasn't necessarily catalyzed individual moves higher when those companies do great, even though, you know, some exceptions. I know some of the leaders today on the S&P 500 are um, earnings movers, PVH uh, being one of them, Yeah, uh, you know, up about uh, about 13 percent. So that was one where, you know, a stock had also been been OK beforehand, it had not been really uh, not been really punished before the uh, the report. So clearly consumer operating very well uh, in the apparel area. Apparel's having a, you know, a moment here. Apparently, everyone's needed to restock. So uh, that's been working. And then Campbell Soup, I did want to mention, it's up 2%, but it had been just an awful stock. Before. The reported earnings. This reported earnings. Yeah, this morning. Reportings are okay. Guidance not great in right. terms of sales and fiscal year uh, results, but it had been blasted. And a lot of the food companies, especially within consumer staples. Uh, final tidbit, uh, I, uh, Christopher Owen over at Strategus mentioned this. Consumer staples as a percentage of the S&P is pretty much at a record low, below 6%. Uh, probably half of the of the proportion it was in the S&P 10 years ago. So obviously, you know, the trends in the market and the economy are not going in their favor, but they also had a great year last year and having a tough time, you know, following that up. Well, apparently consumers are stocking up on toilet paper again this year. Did you read that? I did not. Uh, yeah, we're, we're basically back to March 2020 in terms of the toilet paper barometer. But you bring up a really interesting point about the consumer because consumer sentiment is you know, continues to kind of tick downward. But then CEO confidence has basically never been higher at this point in time. You've got very strong earnings from consumer companies. You've got a bunch of IPOs of consumer companies in the pipelines where clearly their investors, their CEOs, their underwriters believe now is a good time to go public, benefiting from kind of the tailwinds of a strong consumer. So it'll be really, really interesting in the remaining months of the year and into next year to see what the consumer does and how the Delta variant impacts things and how all the other uncertainties out there impacts things, how a slowing potential economic growth uh, really does kind of change the dynamic for the consumer because I think that is, there is this dispersion out there in thought with regard to what the consumer is going to be doing. Yeah. Um, I did want to come to Lucid, which we uh, kind of teased earlier and mentioned it briefly as well. The stock coming off uh, the lows that saw it even a few minutes ago or you saw in the pre-market, but it is still down over 12 percent, of course. Uh, it came into the uh, day with a $32 billion or so 
uh, market value. The decline today is due to potential selling from the pipe investors. They represented uh, about 10% of the overall outstanding shares, 166.7 million. 15 is where they actually purchased or purchased those shares. So not 10, 15. But obviously there is a gain there and there's an expectation and potentially some selling going on by those uh, pipe investors. And that seems to be or is the reason why you're seeing Lucid shares pressured uh, this morning. Plenty may decide to hold on, uh, of course, as well. But uh, but again, roughly 10 percent of the overall um, outstanding shares, the lockup expired today. Yeah. September 1st. It's an important lesson, I think, especially for investors that are new to investing in SPACs. Obviously, Lucid had kind of a unique dynamic to its SPAC, pricing its pipe at $15 as opposed to the typical $10 or wherever the IPO price is. They were able to sell a pipe at a premium because it was considered such a hot and deal to get into. And because the stock into. was trading at such a high level as well. It was still a discount yes. to that level. Yes. Now, you do see these lockup dynamics that take place that are often kind of closer to the actual merger date than a typical IPO, which would be six months, a year, depending on how they structure it. This one, September 1st, of course, being the lockup expiration, you do tend to see kind of that pull back to gravity as people try to arbitrage the situation and make sure that they are able to crystallize their gains as the stock has, of course, gotten closer to that $15 level in recent weeks. Yeah, That, that one-year chart of Lucid, perfectly encapsulates the the kind of mood shift, both for SPACs and EVs, because this was all coming together at the same time right there in in February, uh, and just all kind of crescendoed at that moment. And so both the SPAC, uh, you know, kind of excitement, and of course the the maximum EV uh, enthusiasm also just peaked all at once. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I've been talking lately about the trend we've been seeing in so many SPACs, which is enormous redemptions. Uh, that have resulted in far fewer shares actually uh, being available once and or cash as well to the company once they actually close a transaction. Even though these deals are being approved, we're seeing redemption rates 70, 80, even into the 90 plus percentage, Wow, um, which has been somewhat shocking. By the way, on Lucid, there's a CNBC post back. You can see it's trading below, uh, below par. It's after they announce their deals. Um, I always get a little confused, but I think I got it right there, um, <laughs> which shows you, though, that these things have not been performing particularly well. By the way, Lucid is anticipating, just so we remember, uh, let's call it $1.149 billion in profit by 2023, and then $2.1 billion by 2024. EBITDA seen as uh, $592 million in 2024. I'm just going back to the old uh, the old slides from when they introduced that. All right, want to get to the rails, uh, of course, which has been and something now, we've been following. here is the host of the Faber Report, David Faber. <laughs> Thank you, Johnny Gilbert. Always appreciate that. Um, it is, uh, well, a lot more going on there. Uh, yesterday, we heard from the Surface Transportation Board, of course, ruling on this very important potential component of uh, CNI, of, of Canadian Nationals' ability to acquire uh, Kansas City Southern, which it is in a deal to acquire as of still this moment. Uh, but the STB ruling was, uh, well, it was a no-doubter. Uh, unanimous, and they were basically like, no way. Uh, no way. We don't see this as something that uh, is in the public interest uh, at this point, and they ruled against it. Uh, we got a little uh, language from you from them that we can share at this point. 
with you. Uh, they simply say the proposed use of a voting trust would not be consistent with the public interest. Applicants have failed to establish that their use of a voting trust would have public benefits. The board finds that using a voting trust would give rise to potential public interest harms relating to both competition and divestiture. Um, I can tell you people close to Canadian National somewhat surprised by uh, the deal. Not, not that many others are, are surprised because there had been a general view that it might be difficult to get through, but the ruling itself and the, and, and the way it was stated, will they actually appeal, of course, becomes a question. I'll get to that in, in, in a moment. What the voting trust would have allowed, of course, is the risk to be borne by Canadian National uh, itself as opposed to uh, the shareholders of KCS while they wait for antitrust approval for a deal. Now, uh, Kansas City finds itself in a position where its board is going to have to potentially talk to Canadian National. That's what they say they're doing. They're supposed to have a meeting, uh, or I should say a vote, on said deal as of September 3rd. That has now been adjourned uh, at this point. We don't know when they will hold uh, a vote, but in the interim, they are going to be talking to Canadian National, trying to see what, if anything, can be done here. Now, one key is whether Canadian National will choose to potentially appeal uh, and what that would mean for the way Kansas City Southern's board views a potential deal or its willingness to hang around, postpone. Right now, they have a February uh, drop dead. That's when the merger agreement would expire. Um, or do they, as also seems potentially likely at this point, go back to Canadian Pacific, which has the alternate bid, lower though it is in value, and say, we see the risk on your deal because you can use a voting trust uh, as far less and therefore likely or reasonably likely to lead to a superior proposal and therefore they reopen negotiations with CP. That would seem to certainly be something that very well might happen uh, here. Another question for Canadian National is whether they will really try to say, hey, you know what, we're willing to increase the termination fee, the reverse breakup fee, significantly. We're also willing to top up our offer to allow for uh, the more time that it will potentially take as we extend the merger agreement well beyond February of next year. Give us a chance. Take your risk. It seems highly unlikely that the Kansas City Southern's board would be willing to do that. And by the way, CN is also under pressure here because it has an active shareholder in its ranks in the form of TCI, Crisson, not an insignificant uh, force in that world. They own 5.2%, and they made no bones about it, uh, saying in a letter, and I think we have that uh, as well, that uh, proceeding without a voting trust by a Canadian national would be reckless, irresponsible, and massively value destructive. The board must understand the rules have changed. The old rules don't apply. There's no way you can have any confidence in how the new merger rules will be interpreted. This is by the DOJ they're talking about as well, because they've never been used before. Therefore, given there is such uncertainty around the approval process, it would be negligent to make a higher offer and, they, uh, and demand billions more and everything else. And in fact, they actually say they want the CEO potentially uh, replaced. I would point out, importantly, and Leslie, you know this as well, um, they own all they own more of CP than they do of CN. Percentage-wise, where are they? At like 9-plus percent of, uh, of Canadian Pacific shares. So 8.4 percent of Canadian Pacific shares. So that's an important point there. They would benefit in their position there as a result of potential deal that they feel would be more positive. I think everybody gets it. All right. How'd I do, Johnny Gilbert? All right? I hope so. Still to come, details about a new White House death tax plan. That's under fire. We're going to be right back after this.
Welcome back to Squawk on the Street. Rick Santelli here, live with breaking news at CME HQ, our August final read on market PMI for manufacturing, 61.1. So we toss out the mid-month read at 61.2, comes in one-tenth less, and this is the lightest since April when we were 60.5. But here's the cautionary tale. Whether it's this or Chicago PMI yesterday or the fact that we're going to get more PMIs and service PMIs, the fact we're so far over 50, the line of expansion contraction, is a definite positive, even though, of course, many issues, including supply chains and variants, are pushing us back just a bit. Big story today, European yields continue to gain on U.S. yields, and U.S. yields dropped rather dramatically in the time following the week ADP jobs report. Squawk on the Street will return after these messages. With the S&P up 0.2%, let's get over to Bob Bassani and get more from him on this market move this morning. Bob. Hello, David. Happy Wednesday. Uh, Two to one advancing to declining stocks, but kind of flattish opening. Not a lot of new highs. That's a selective rally, and that's a little bit of a problem for the technicians here. Let me just show you what's moving here. There you see the momentum names, tech and communication services. This is essentially technology put together. That's where the momentum has been all month. Growth stocks over value stocks, big caps over small caps. That's an inversion of what happened earlier in the year. Meantime, yield alternatives like REITs, that's a historic high for the real estate uh, uh, index there. Banks, sideways for months. Industrials, sideways for months. What's there typically? Uh, They're cyclicals. So you see that inversion. Growth, cyclicals tend to be value stocks. So there you see the, uh, the inversion that we've been seeing here. In terms of why the market's at new highs, people act like they're baffled why, but the three things that matter to the stock market, I keep emphasizing over and over again, earnings, profit margin, and interest rates. And they've all colluded to sort of a perfect storm here. Earnings are not only at a record, but the estimates for the third and fourth quarter are still rising. That's the most important thing. Profit margins north of 13%. That's a historic record. It's been 9 to 11% for many, many years. Interest rates have been staying low on top of that. There's no wonder why the market is at a new high. One thing that's a concern, the technicians constantly are messaging me, I don't like the internals here, Bob, because they look at things like the advanced decline line, how many stocks are advancing versus declining on a daily level. That peaked back in June. The percentage of stocks at new highs peaked in March, believe it or not. In fact, we've only got 90 new highs down on the NYSE today. That's not much at all, given the fact that we're new highs. And momentum, I look at the percentage of stocks above the 200-day moving average. That's a standard standard technical metric. Only 58% of the S&P is above the 200-day moving average. Is that a little, a lot? It was 90% back in February. So what does all of this tell you, these internals? Well, it tells you that the advance has been fairly selective in the last month or so. That's a concern to technicians. They want to see broad market advances. And you know what that means when we use the word that's code, selective advance. When you get growth, it means fang names. So with the S&P up you know, 5%, 6% this quarter, you see the moves up here in these big names. The average top five names is up more than 10% for the month. So when you've got those five moving and they're more than 20% of the index, that's enough to move things forward, and that's what we call that selective advance and why you're not seeing the advanced decline line uh, move forward as much. Uh, in terms of what matters, uh, a lot of people overnight kept messaging me saying, oh, the world's doing really well, Bob. The uh, all-world index is doing well here. But remember, there's a lot of issues about what could go wrong with the rallies. 
Number one, we could still have a Fed communication misstep. We have not had one. They've been masterful in communicating what they want to do. Uh, we could have a new COVID variant emerging. We could have much further supply disruptions uh, than we've had accelerating. And we could get sticky, not transient inflation. All this is out there, but the market is, uh, is saying, for the moment, they're not concerned about it. Finally, just want to note uh, a lot of discussions about the fact that the world's been doing well. It's true. Europe is doing well. There's the big index for the whole world. If you want to own everything in the world, that's uh, ACWI. That's the old world index. It is at a historic high. I don't like this index for a simple reason. It's really the United States, 60% United States. What you want to watch is XUS. That's where the professionals go, and they put their money into things like the Vanguard Inter- International index. This is the whole world, X the United States. And here you're seeing much less of a move, sideways essentially. This is Hong Kong. This is France. Uh, this is uh, Japan. The reason it's not doing as well as the rest of the world is, of course, Leslie, Japan and China have underperformed for months. So, Leslie, yes, world's doing better. Europe's doing better. But don't kid yourself. The U.S. is still outperforming everybody. Back to you. Yeah, thank you, Bob. And even within the U.S., dispersion and stock picking seems to be very critical at this time. Thank you for joining us. Uh, the Biden administration feeling the heat over a new tax proposal. Robert, Robert Frank joins us now with the details. Hey, Robert. Good morning, Leslie. Uh, Biden's plan to tax unrealized gains at death now facing a lot of opposition, including from some leading Democrats. Biden has proposed getting rid of what's called the step up in basis and imposing a capital gains tax on appreciated assets upon death, for those who make more than a million dollars a year. But a coalition of farmers, small businesses, and other lobbying groups now mounting an attack. They say this change would force families to sell their farms or companies they have spent generations building just to pay this tax. Now, leading the charge and a new ad campaign is former Democratic Senator Heidi Heitkamp. She has long called for higher taxes on the wealthy, but she says... Taxpayers should not have to pay a capital gains tax unless an asset is actually sold. I'm trying to sound the alarm, both economically and politically for Democrats, that this is not a path to walk, which is taxing unrealized gain. Now, Biden's plan does exempt family farms and businesses that continue to be owned by those families. It also allows 15 years for families to pay taxes on businesses not exempt or being sold. The White House also says that only the richest three-tenths of one percent of taxpayers would actually pay the tax. Though, guys, as you can imagine, that number two under fierce debate right now. Back to you. Robert, how would they appraise to even know what capital gains to, to pay if, uh, if they haven't sold the assets? Well, most of the assets that are appreciated but not taxed are basically, you know, stocks, any kind of financial assets. Those are easy to market, uh, mark to market. What is difficult, to your point, are properties, private assets, private companies. How do you value a private company? That's very difficult. So that is one of the big criticisms, just like it is with the wealth tax. How do you, you know, basically appraise or value something that hasn't been sold? So that's going to be one of the challenges to this. Yeah, quite a few challenges, in fact. Uh, Robert, thank you. Robert Frank. You've been listening to the opening bell on CNBC's Squawk on the Street. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, 
No one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.